Thanks, Andrea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, by your living spirit, to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Today is the uh, third Sunday of Advent. We have a pink uh, candle. Uh, It's pink because it's known as uh, Gordate Sunday. Gordate is Latin for rejoicing. I looked that up on Wikipedia. I know it's true. Uh, and th- it's the kind of middle, the middle Sunday, kind of two, two Sundays before this one and then another Sunday and then Christmas Day in our celebration. So it's a moment of light in the kind of dark season of preparation and waiting. John the Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. We're going to think about what that means uh, this morning. But first, a little bit about John the Baptizer. He was born six months before Jesus. His mother was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and so he is Jesus' cousin. Uh, most scholars agree that he began his ministry at age about 29 or 30, and so he was a bit before Jesus in terms of his birth and a bit before Jesus in terms of his ministry. He was also the son of Zechariah, and Zechariah was a priest in the temple of Jerusalem, the main uh, place of worship. So the family was likely to have been quite well known. Matthew's Gospel tells us that many people from Jerusalem and Judea came to hear John preach. Many crowds gathered to be baptised by him. And the probable reason for this is that there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. So then along comes this strong and dynamic individual someone who goes out and lives in the desert and then comes back, who teaches amongst the poor people, who dresses like them, who eats like them, and who is a powerful preacher. He leads a renewal movement within uh, Judaism. He calls all people, whoever they are, to repent and be baptised, not just uh, Gentiles, but Jews too. In Luke's Gospel, we're told that uh, he was great before the Lord. And that he was filled with God's Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb. So here's John, this radical uh, figure who's come out from the desert, who's filled with God's Spirit, who's preaching to huge crowds who are uh, coming out from uh, Jerusalem and Judea. Everyone is talking about him. Everyone is taking note of him. No wonder people want to know who he is and what he is about. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John is going to bear witness about who Jesus is. The priests and the Levites, the religious leaders, they're trying to figure out who John is. Perhaps he's the Messiah. Perhaps he thinks he's the Messiah. He's certainly somebody. He's growing in popularity. He's taking them on. He's starting to make them feel uncomfortable. Something needs to be done. So they come And they ask questions. And this is his answer, verse 20. He 
He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This is interesting because there were so many things about himself he could have said. He could have established his credentials, talked about at the time he'd spent in the desert praying and fasting, preparing himself spiritually for his ministry. He could have pointed to his his disciples, his followers who were gathered around him and who were uh, hanging on his every word. He could have made reference to the huge crowds who were coming to listen to him preach and be baptised by him. He could have mentioned his family connections, that his father was somebody big in the temple. But he doesn't do any of that. This is his testimony, and his testimony starts with a negative. He states plainly what he's not. I am not the Messiah. It's not about John. It's not about him and his ministry and the great things that he's done and the crowds who are coming to hear him. It's not about his powerful preaching tell you who I'm not. It's not about me. I am not the Christ. Jesus Christ. Properly, Jesus the Christ. Christ isn't a surname, it's a title. Christ means Messiah. One Bible scholar explains the word like this. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed, and the Greek word is Christ. To the Jews, it was the same as Son of God. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed and thereby set apart for special service. Kings were especially called God's anointed. So when the Jews spoke about the Messiah... They were thinking about the king who would come and establish his heavenly kingdom. And John says, I'm not that king. I'm not that Christ. I'm not that Messiah. Because Jesus is that king. Jesus is that Christ. Jesus is that Messiah. The questioning will go on. Well, are you Elijah then? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. I love the kind of directness of these answers. Often think, well, in my testimony, in my witness to Jesus, I don't know what to say. I don't have the words. Well, at this occasion, John didn't have a lot of words either. I'm not. No. John is a witness. It's not about him. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Let me encourage you with this. This is John's testimony. I'm not the Christ. Your testimony is not about you. Your testimony is about Jesus. Some of you, I know, have remarkable testimonies, remarkable uh, stories about how how you came to Christ. 
Others of you have remarkable stories about what the Lord has done in your life. His sovereign intervention, his healing, his direction, his guidance, his protection. But the most important part of your witness is Jesus. Your testimony is about pointing people to Jesus. Showing who he is. Explaining what he's accomplished through his death and resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit. Others of you, if I can put it like this, have had a very ordinary experience of the Christian life. There's been no great dramatic interventions. There's been no voices of angels. There's been no journey from despair to hope. There's been no great trial and no great turmoil. You've just been steady eddies. You've just got on with it as God has got on with it with you. There's been a few moments where you think God might have directed you, but you're not sure. There's been occasions where you've had a sense God has been watching over you, but you can't quite explain why. You've known God's provision, or it could have been you just worked hard. Maybe you feel you haven't much of a testimony to share because you haven't got any great stories. Well, for you too, the most important part of your testimony is not what God has or hasn't done in your life, but it's about pointing people to Jesus. You too need to point people to Christ. Explain who he is and what he's done through his death and resurrection. So he's pouring out of the Spirit. Whether or not you have a remarkable story to tell is not what defines your witness. It's not what makes or breaks your testimony. The question is whether or not you will focus your life and your witness on Jesus. You'll seek to make clear who Christ is and point to him. The questioning of John continues. So you're not the Christ. Are you Elijah then? Are you the prophet? Why would they think he might be Elijah? Another scholar notes that there's a prophecy in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament which speaks about Elijah being a forerunner to Jesus. The Jews expected Elijah himself to return in bodily form just before the Messiah and establish his earthly kingdom. Even today when they celebrate the Jewish uh, Passover, uh, many Jews leave an empty seat at the table, a seat for Elijah. And John's appearance was strikingly similar to Elijah's. In Mark we read that John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist. While in the Old Testament, Elijah is described as a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. John's call for repentance and his warning of judgment would have reminded his hearers about Elijah. So the Levites ask him directly, Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah come back from the dead? Are you Elijah resurrected in these days? 
I am not, he says. And yet, in a sense, he is. Once Jesus was talking about his disciples, and they're puzzling over this prophecy in Matthew 17. The disciples came to him and asked, why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not know him. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking of John the Baptist. In a sense, John is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, but not how the Jews expected. Are you the prophet? No, replies John. And then they give up. Okay, no more guessing. Tell us who you are. And once again, here John is wonderfully direct. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet has said. The question is, what do you say about yourself? And the answer again points to Christ. Once again, he doesn't get into who he is or what he's accomplished. He doesn't talk about where he's come from or his uh, family connections. He just simply and humbly says, look, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice crying out, and some listen and some don't. This is the kind of humility God's servants everywhere should have. This is the kind of humility that Paul, the great apostle, had. I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. What does that mean? Make straight the way of the Lord. What, what is he speaking of here? It means get ready. Get ready for the Messiah. Get ready for the coming king. Get your hearts ready for the coming of Christ. Get ready to meet him. Be prepared for him. I baptize with water, he says. But among you stands one you do not know, one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. In every question, John points to one who is greater than him. He's simply the forerunner. He's simply the one who prepares the way. He's simply the one who encourages others to get ready. He doesn't boast about who he is or what he's done. He doesn't point to his great potentials, but just points to another. The one who is anointed. The one who is the king. The one who is the Messiah. It wouldn't be right this morning to look at uh, John's testimony and to finish there. Because John always points away from himself and points to Jesus. 
So I'm going to close this morning with a reminder as to who this light of the world is and why this light of the world entered into the darkness. As part of my uh, preparations for Advent, my getting ready, my preparing my heart, um, I've been reading this book by Max Lucado, In the Manger, a series of reflections upon Jesus, the light of the world. I'm going to close with one of these uh, this morning. The God of the universe was born into the poverty of a peasant. He spent his first night in the cow's feeding trough. The God of the universe left the glory of heaven and moved into our neighborhood. The light of the world came and shone in the darkness. Who could have imagined he would do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? Why? Because he loves to be with the ones he loves. Dr. Maxwell Maltz tells a remarkable story of a love like this. A man had been burned and disfigured in a fire while attempting to save his parents from a burning house. Tragically, he couldn't get to them. They perished in the fire. The man mistakenly interpreted his pain as God's punishment. The man would not let anyone see him, not even his wife. He spent his days locked away in his bedroom. In desperation, his wife went to see Dr. Maltz, a plastic surgeon. She poured out her heart before him. Dr. Maltz told her not to worry. I can restore his face. The wife was unenthused. Her husband had repeatedly refused help and offers such as this. She knew he would again. Then why her visit? Why have you come to see me? asked Maltz. The wife replied, I want you to disfigure my face. I want you to make me look like him. If I can share his pain, maybe he'll let me back into his life. Dr. Maltz was shocked and appalled. He denied her request, but he was so moved by her love that he went to speak with her husband. She led him into the house. He made his way up to the bedroom. He knocked on the man's bedroom door. There was no answer. He called out loudly. I'm Dr. Maltz. I'm a plastic surgeon. I can restore your face. There was no response. He knocked again. Please, please come out and talk to me. Again, there was no response. Still speaking through the door, Dr. Maltz told the man of his wife's proposal. She wants me to disfigure her face. She wants me to make her face look like yours in the hope that you'll let her back into your life. That's how much she loves you. There's a brief moment of silence. And then ever so slowly, the doorknob began to turn. The way the woman felt for her husband is the way that God feels about us. 
But he did more than make the offer. He took on our face. He shared our disfigurement. He became just like us. Look at the places he was willing to go. Feed troughs and carpenters' shops, the badlands and the cemeteries. The places he went to reach us shows how far he will go to touch us. He loves to be with the ones he loves. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. The shepherd king who becomes the slain lamb. The light of the world who enters into the darkness. The king of kings and lord of lords who stoops so low to be among us. Lord, give us the grace to point to this Messiah, the light of the world. Amen.